Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch, and this season we're building for the Fallout role-playing game. Now, I find it hard to fathom at this point, but if you still don't have a copy of the rules, stop by your local game shop or bookstore, or check out the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Now, we've got a lot to do this week because we've got a game summary to get in. So let's get into the recap of what we built last week so we could start building some new stuff. We started with the group entering the factory of mass logistics and looking for a spot to hide in in order to check things out. Now, they might have had issues with security and they might not have. But regardless, the goal was to check out the offices on the second floor. They eventually made their way to the office of Tucker Malloy, and by hacking his computer, they found messages from Jackson Denman, to Jackson Denman, to one S. Owens, and one from Longsworth. The gist of the deal is that Denman and Malloy are building synths for sale, and it might just be for the highest bidder. It is also apparent that Longsworth is a buyer. The group skedaddled on out of there and returned to Diamond Pass, On the way there, they ran into Mackenzie Cook, who lets them know she's found out from a source of hers that Longsworth has a delivery of some sort of product coming two nights from that very night in the old St. Louis County Courthouse in Clayton. The group shared info of their own, then headed to the pass to bring Victor up to speed. Victor tells them that the synths they ran into outside the brewery were owned by a man named Sylvester Owens, and Victor remembered someone by that name working for Tucker Malloy in the past. So, the group got a name to go with that S they had for the S. Owens in the email. Victor was intrigued by the report of Longsworth getting a delivery, and he believes, as does the group, that Longsworth is getting his synths from Malloy. He encourages the group to head that way in the morning so as to not get caught scoping out the building. He also provides them with some heavy guns, just in case they need it. We ended the build with the group leaving the third base saloon to head home for rest before the next big deal. Now, the group has a decision to make. Victor suggested they leave for Clayton in the morning so as to be there in plenty of time to scope things out without being noticed. Now, the group should know it's going to take about two hours and 45 minutes to get there, so leaving first thing in the morning isn't necessarily a must. But it should occur to them that getting there at some point the next day would be a good idea, Since, in theory anyway, they should be able to scope out the courthouse and the surrounding area without drawing too much attention to themselves, since the prevailing opinion should be that security for the exchange will most likely get there earlier in the day on the day of the deal, and they don't want to risk running into each other. If they don't want to leave first thing, we've created some extra scenarios over time, so if you haven't run one of those, go ahead and do so if you want. Or... Just toss them a quick delivery job to do for a few caps. If you do that, make sure you toss an encounter in so they don't get free caps, basically. Otherwise, they'll do as requested first thing in the morning. They'll get their gear packed and ready to go, and they'll start making their way west towards Clayton. When they get to the area around the old Kiel Auditorium, they'll get jumped by a batch of super mutants. We'll go with super mutant brutes, and we'll have enough here to cover half the number of the group rounded up. Once they're through that, the next encounter will be when they get in the area of Barnes Hospital and or the Twisted Tap. 
They're not going to be at one of those since the group is probably going to root around them, but I'm giving you an idea of approximately where this is. This time it's another batch of synths and Garson tactical gear, and we've posted the stats for those on the website if you don't already have them. It's going to be one for each group member. No rest for the wicked on this one. They get a little farther out, parallel to the zoo for the record. Then coming out of the zoo, they're going to run into a death claw. Stats are on page 342, and if you've played the video game, you know running away from these things isn't an easy option. So even if they've managed to run from the others, they're going to probably have to fight this one. But that's going to be the last encounter. From here, the rest of their walk will go without incident. Now, since they've had three encounters, the total walk time will run closer to three hours and 15 minutes. But that shouldn't make a huge difference one way or the other. Okay, so it's time for me to lay out the area around the courthouse, since we need an idea of what we're working with. In our time, the courthouse takes up the better part of a block in Clayton, though there are a few other county and state associated offices inside. It has a skywalk to the north that crosses the street to where the prosecutor's office and other offices for court-related personnel are located, and to the south of that is a parking garage. On the blocks to the north and south are a number of lawyers' offices and small restaurants, which I think is pretty standard for areas with county, state, or federal courthouses. So if you've got a layout like this where you live, you pretty much know what I'm talking about. If not, toss it into a Google search and check out the maps and pictures. In our time, and I mean game time by our time, the office across from the courthouse lies in complete rubble. The courthouse is mostly destroyed, and half of the parking garage is as well. But there are a few additions that we need to get into, and we'll just call this the group checking everything out when they're ready to. The way the rubble of the courthouse is arranged, there's an elevated spot, maybe 50 feet or so up, that a sniper could position themselves in to keep an eye on the part of the garage that's still covered. In fact, they'd have one heck of a clean shot at it. They'll also notice elevated platforms on the north and south corners of that block, which would also give clean shots at someone on the street. Checking out the garage itself, the only spot that appears to be usable enough for a deal, at least a private one, is the aforementioned covered section. And that's not overly large. It's about 50 feet by 50 feet, which doesn't leave a lot of room for a lot of synths to be brought in. If you want to put any other cool details in here, feel free to do so, because as I tend to do when I run this, I can promise you I'm going to add some stuff. Now, Victor had assured the group he'd have a safe house set for him, and he didn't disappoint. The location is a couple of blocks east of the meat spot, but it's a decent little house with a couple of rooms. And since it's got functional locks and a roof, it's nicer than anything they'd be finding on their own. Having a place to stay means they've got some downtime to fix their gear or work on other things prior to the morning. However... The evening is going to be interrupted by raiders. Just good old-fashioned raiders. Two raider scavers, stats on 389. Three raider veterans, stats on page 390. And a raider boss, stats on 387. The basic idea is that these raiders believe this to be their territory, and so they want to run out anybody that's in their territory. Basically, what we want is for the group to disabuse these guys of that particular thought of theirs. Shouldn't be too hard. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge, but they should be able to handle that without much of an issue. Morning will arrive, and the group will have about 12 hours on their hands before the meeting. 
This is an opportunity for the group to do some scavenging if they want, but if your group isn't much on the role play and scavenging, let's just fast forward to the meeting itself. One thing that is going to definitely need to have been verbalized by this point is what the group's plan for the meeting is going to be. And make sure you take some notes because you're going to need to respond to the group's moves. And frankly, the group needs to, because I know how my group does. Sometimes my group will think they've got a plan together, but you're going to have half of them that agreed on one plan and the other half that thought they agreed on half the plan that they worked out earlier. So it's a great opportunity for them to just make sure they thought this through and here's what we're going to do. Anyway, once that's all done, let's fast forward to the meeting. Around 6.30 in the evening, the group sees a dozen individuals in Garson tactical gear escorting another individual into the garage. About 20 minutes later, the familiar form of Longsworth is noted along with a dozen of his preferred escorts. They enter the garage and within minutes, the sound of gunfire and laser pistols being fired is heard. Moments later, Longsworth and a couple of his synths sprint out of the garage heading north. Now, I'm pretty sure the group's not going to head into the garage, but let's lay out what's going on in there anyway. There's a lot of dead bodies in here, and it's hard to tell what is human and what is synth, with one exception. The one person that came in with the Garson tactical team is lying in the middle of a half a dozen of them with two bullet holes in his forehead. Now, we both know, though, that the group is probably not going to stop to check that out. Instead, they're probably going to tail Longsworth to see where he's headed. We've been using endurance plus survival for these checks, so let's stay consistent. Difficulty's going to be two, because Longsworth isn't really making an effort to hide, at least not at first. They head north for about 10 blocks, then Longsworth cuts to the east. A half a dozen blocks later, he cuts south down an alley. His escort stopped to block the alley and engage the group. When that's done, let's do another endurance plus survival, though we'll kick the difficulty up to four since Longsworth got a little bit of a lead on him at this point. However, it's possible a member or two of the group peeled off and managed to stay with Longsworth. Either way, they'll note he cuts north about a block after he hit the alleyway. He continues to run down alleyways for almost a mile, then cuts into a building. When the group arrives, they note he just ran into a garage and he's managed to pick up some more security, as in enough synths for two each per group member. This will be where those big guns the group got will come in handy. They can get into the building once they're done, but Longsworth's going to be nowhere to be found. The building is a single story, standard size store or office. I'm leaving it like that. You handle the layout however you want. Now, the group is probably going to want to search, and it's going to need to be a quick search. They'll find something usable. There's a balled-up piece of paper about a foot or so away from a trash can. Just kind of seems out of place. When they check it out, they realize they are back in the hunt. It reads, Longsworth, Vest Bottling Plant, Loading Dock, T.M. Now, for those of you not aware, there was a time that Vest sodas were both produced and bottled in St. Louis, and the facility was just north of where the current dome at America Center is located. And it also happens to be about a 20-minute or so walk north from Diamond Pass. The group will probably be aware of this, and they'll also be aware that there's no way Longsworth's running nonstop for the next couple of hours to get there. It'll take just under three hours to walk there from where they are, but the group can make an intelligence plus luck check difficulty three to realize they can cut a bit of time off of that by taking a couple of shortcuts. 
Those shortcuts require them to move through some areas that have been typically super mutant or raider controlled, but if they can pick their way through those, they can get to the bottling plant 20 minutes faster. And since Longsworth's not from here, he probably wouldn't think of it and is since certainly wouldn't know about it, most likely. So let's have a couple of checks. We're doing agility plus sneak difficulty three. Since the group's going to want to sneak their way through these areas to be avoid being seen, engaged and locked down for a period of time, they're going to need to make three of these or at least not have complications on them, since failure just means they've been seen and will be chased and shot at to move through. I'll let you decide which areas have what in them, so run them how you see fit. The group will see the vest bottle in the front of the plant, though in our game time it's not a full bottle. The top of it got clipped off when the bombs dropped. Heading around to the loading dock, the group notices a couple of huge metal crates. I mean, these dudes are big enough to comfortably hold a dozen or so humans, which should immediately set off alarms with the group. If they try to open them, they can't. They're locked. Now, I know my group, and I'll bet yours is the same, so perception plus lockpick difficulty 5. And we're going to extend the complication range to 18 to 20. Success means they swing the door of one of the crates open and find a dozen synths inside. They're not active at the moment, but they're definitely ready to be activated immediately. Same check for the other one. And a complication on either roll will jam up the lock, so that should be an issue. Now, before your group can take any further actions, they'll hear the voice of Longsworth behind them. Now, gentlemen, you wouldn't be trying to steal the product I paid good caps for, now would you? He's got a laser pistol pulled and his hand in his coat pocket. If the group makes any move to pull weapons, he pulls out his hand and shows the frag grenade in his hand, pin pulled. He'll holster the pistol so he can gesture with his other hand. Longsworth will explain what happened at the garage to the group. His story is that while he paid 75% of the cost up front, Mr. Owens tried to get more than the remaining 25% out of him to hand over the key and the location of his synths. He notes he was left with no other choice, which is why his synths took out all the Garson personnel there. He laments the loss of his synths, but is willing to overlook the group's role in taking out as many of them as they did if they'll walk away and allow him to take possession of the synths on this loading dock. Normally, I'd say something about rolling the charisma plus speech check for Longsworth, but we're not going to do one here. We're just going to say he's got four successes, so he's going to come off as pretty darn convincing. At least convincing enough, the group should be willing to put their weapons away and talk. And if they do, he'll put the pin back in the grenade for the moment. If the group wants information, he'll be willing to give it so long as they let him have the sense when they're done. If the group agrees, he'll give it. If they're not, it's decision time. But since the group still needs information, they should be willing to have a discussion. Should you have a party of murder hobos, however, this is going to get messy because Longsworth will pull the pin again, toss the grenade, and attempt to run. He's not a fighter, so he's not going to shoot. Use initiative 15 for him, and for each turn he gets, he tosses another frag grenade, and he'll do that and run until they either let him get away or, or kill him. Now, that being said, let's get into the information that he will provide. He admits he's been dealing with Tucker Malloy and Jackson Denman since before he came to town. He prefers to use synths as bodyguards and security because, in his words, they're more reliable than humans. 
He picked up the first batch when he got to town, and this is the first portion of the second batch. He admits he's never met with Malloy at his office. Typically, they exchange computer mail, but when they do need to meet, they meet at the Twisted Tap. He's not overly fond of Malloy, but notes that sometimes you have to deal with people you don't necessarily like to get what you need. Their first deal actually took place in the parking garage at Barnes Hospital. However, he notes that Gosson had an incident there with a group busting in, so they won't do any sort of deal there anymore. He gives a knowing look at the group when he says that. He doesn't know anything about what Malloy and Denman are up to. The only thing he deals with them for is synths, and he will swear on a stack of gold Bibles on that. There's nothing else there, so the group needs to decide how they want to handle it. If by chance they take out Longsworth, they're now in possession of two dozen synths. Now, while I would strongly advise against allowing that, squirrel that up however you want to make it happen, if you're playing straight up and that's how it goes, then that's how it goes. We will have a way out of that down the line, so I'm not going to sweat it too much, neither should you. Frankly, I'm not going to have this problem because I've got two members of the Brotherhood of Steel in my group, and as we know, they despise synths. So this shouldn't even be an issue for me. You know what? I tell you what, let's toss, let's toss the group a bone. If they are allowing Longsworth to leave and keep his synths, he'll stop them before they get too far away and he'll toss them a hollow tape. He'll just say something like, I took it off of Owens. No idea what was on it, but maybe you can use it. Of course, if they kill him, so long as they don't blow him up, they can take it off his body. And really, I guess if Longsworth would need to offer this up to close the deal, he would do it. Now, I have a character with a Pip-Boy, so let's just go ahead and play it here. The voice of Tucker Malloy comes out loud and clear. This is going to be the last exchange you handled for us for since. Starting tomorrow, you need to head to our Ledoux facility and oversee the new project. It's imperative we get this up and running as soon as possible, because what we're working on needs to be out quickly. That group is on to us, and this is the weapon we'll need. That's what's on the tape. And while there's no location given for the Ledoux facility, they've at least got something they can work with on finding leads. Now, as we usually do on this, the group will head back to Diamond Pass to meet with Victor. However, he's not there. Neither is Bruno. One of the serving robots will hand him a note and tell him it's from Mr. Victor. My friends, I am following up on something we discussed the other day. I took Bruno with me to make sure things go okay. Have a meal on me, go get some rest, and we will meet tomorrow. Victor. So, the group can go off and do those things, and I think this is a good spot to bring our build for this week to a close. Next week, we'll pick up with the face-to-face with Victor, and we'll see where we go from there. That means it's time to get into the game recap for my group, but we'll start by recapping what we did last time. The group was ready to cross the Merrimack River to head off to hunt ragstags. They got across the river, realized they were being watched, and headed off to the hunting grounds. They managed to get a couple of ragstags right off the bat, but also had an encounter with members of the Lagerfeld family. The family members told them to leave, but the group attempted to negotiate to stay longer, and thanks to some smooth talking and the exchange of some caps, they got three hours to hunt. The group managed to get a lot more ragstags, but also managed to encounter a pair of Yao Guai, finding them in a cave as they searched for more ragstags. Thanks to a judicious use of missiles and Molotov cocktails, they managed to drop the beasts with little issue. Their hunting day completed, they headed back to the ferry drop-off. They also noted they were getting the side-eye from both the Lagerfelds and the Mitchells as they did so. They crossed the river, settled up with Martin, and made their way back north. 
Along the way, they managed to not get ambushed by Garson Tactical, thanks to the new and improved sensors that both Jim and Tyler have. However, there was still a firefight, and while the group had everything pretty well under control, the appearance of a mysterious stranger to finish off the Garson Tactical men had the group a bit confused. They returned to the third base saloon, brought Victor up to speed about what happened, and discussed their next move. Victor was surprised that Garson would attack them, and he promised he would look into it. We ended the session with the group leveling up and spending some of their hard-earned caps. And if you listened to last week's special episode, you know we've got a slightly different scenario for the group to do this week, and that's so we can get the path they're currently on lined up with what we've got lined up for the second act. So, let's pick up with the recap of the game. Oh, and I, I don't think I note this often enough. I reset the action points for the group to zero, and I set mine to eight. And our group was without Max for the session, and Tyler came in a little bit after we started. The group was taking advantage of their downtime, with Gabe finally getting around to hacking the drive they'd picked up all the way back when they hit the chemical plant, like, months ago in real time. The others were checking their weapons and gear. You know, the kinds of things you should be doing with downtime. This led us straight into the scenario I wrote for last week's special episode, and the young ladies approached the group to find their parents and bring them back. One difference between how we wrote it and how it was run was that the girls did not have to pay the group caps to convince them to head back to Diamond Pass. They decided to do it for the bullets. As expected, the group, mostly Jim, asked a lot of questions about the situation, with Jim continually asking what their parents did to earn caps and Rachel constantly insisting she didn't know. I managed to get the others in the group to get Jim to back off of her when I had her break down and start crying because she couldn't answer the question. They did the meet with Oscar and he brought him up to speed with what Grant does for a living. I left it the way we wrote it up, sort of. I insinuated that he'd done jobs for Barnabas O'Reilly and a few of the others from time to time, but again kept it along the lines of nothing dangerous or overly illegal. The group took the frag grenades from the crate, then decided to head to the house to scope it out before they headed for a rescue. As anticipated, they found the holotape and vial, and from the holotape they were able to figure out how Grant got himself into the situation he was in. With all the necessary information, they headed to the riverfront between Liza's place and the Nuka-Cola factory to scope out and see what they could see. They got the snipers pretty quickly, so they had a pretty good idea almost immediately as to where the facility was. However, they also decided pretty quickly that there was no way they were going to do a frontal assault. They surmised, correctly, that a frontal assault would take up a lot of resources and probably end with one or more of them badly injured, captured, or dead. So, they came up with another idea. They ran with the theory that there had to be, at the very least, an old sewer pipe running under the facility, if not some old caverns, as that area does have a great many of them in reality. So they had Tyler's Mr. Handy check his records since he's from the area pre-war and he was able to determine that there was one under there. However, since the facility above is post-war, he has no idea if it actually attaches. They weren't overly concerned with that though and decided to head for the riverbank since that's where the pipe would open up for entry. And in a moment of brilliance on their part, they decided to cut down a lane that would allow Tyler to scan the facility as they went past determining how many individuals were inside and try to figure out where our kidnapped parents are. I pulled Tyler aside, gave him the 411 on that, and I pulled all of that from what we wrote, so check out the special episode from last week for all the details. 
When they got to the pipe opening, I pulled the laser turrets we put into the sewer pipe for mass logistics and dropped them in there. However, the group had another solution. Since they were quite aware that gunfire would more than likely pull the attention of the snipers, then the attention of more troops. So they started searching for the power box. Since I hadn't anticipated that, I went with an old standby of mine, which is to ask one of the group members to call high or low. I then rolled a d6. One through three is low, four through six is high. If they call it, I give them a solution that has the chance to work to their advantage. If not, well, it works to my advantage. They called it, but I noted that the two turrets in the front of the pipe could still target and fire on them as they made their way to the power box. So, since Gabe's the hacker of the group, he made a sneak check with a difficulty of three to get to the box successfully. Only then did he find out the box containing the pad he needed to hack was locked. So Tyler tried the same sneak and succeeded. Tyler picked the lock, Gabe hacked the system, and all the turrets powered down. The next challenge they had was to figure out where Grant and Gloria were exactly so they could rescue them with a minimum amount of combat being involved. Now, when Tyler did his scans previously, he'd noted that there were two figures in very close proximity, and the group went with the assumption that these were Grant and Gloria. The issue they had was concerning some of the other figures they'd noticed, since the sensor sweep couldn't accurately tell them where the figures were or which direction they were looking in. The group batted that particular ball around for a while, discussing as many of the possibilities as possible before they settled on this. Tyler and Jim would use their lasers to cut away the rock underneath the pair of signatures that were close together. Once they hit metal, which would mean they were at the floor of the room, they'd conduct another scan to make sure they were where they needed to be. The plan from there was to cut the floor loose, rescue the couple, and beat feet for Diamond Pass, hopefully before Garson Tactical could figure out who was responsible. Confirming they were in the correct spot, they cut the floor loose and lowered the couple down. Just as the two guards outside the cell began to realize something was up, Aniston decided to leave him a present. He popped his head up out of the hole and tossed a frag grenade in their direction, then ducked back down and followed the group out of the tunnel. Now that actually turned out to be a good move, as the resulting explosion took out some of the instrument panels inside the area, and that diverted security's attention to the explosion rather than the escaping group. They got back to the pass, reunited the family, and got their payment. They also reported to Victor to let him know what was up. He wasn't in, so they hung out around the pass until he returned. They told him about what had happened, and that's when he reported that there's a significant bounding on the heads of each of the group members. He told him he's working to get it cleared up, but suggested they lay low for a couple days. However, he almost immediately had to back off that statement, as I altered the beginning of the second act to have a Mr. Gutsy come into his office to report the break-in at the storage facility. Victor charged the group with the investigation and provided them with the location. Now, things went pretty much the same way as we wrote them, though I did leave a couple of synths in the warehouse for the group to find, so they figured out pretty quickly that Garson is not responsible. They had the run-in with the synth courser and eventually made their way back to the pass, where Victor informed him of their meeting at the Twisted Tap later in that evening. Based on the gear taken from the warehouse, Scott's very wary of meeting anyone anywhere, and that comes from the fact that I gave a list of things to be taken to include a lot of mini-nukes. However, they did the meeting, and we ended the session just as Longsworth was preparing to enter. So, that's where we're going to pick up next time. And that's going to bring this week's show to a close. 
Next week in our build, we'll follow the group as they continue to follow the clues they've been picking up during the course of the investigation, and we'll see just how some of these new pieces fit together. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Role-Playing History. This week is episode two of the most popular modules published adventures of all time, as determined by our listeners, and some of the releases on this list might surprise you. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the copyrighted and trademark properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in this or any of the other fine games produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we keep putting the puzzle pieces together, and we might just start getting a better idea of what that finished picture looks like. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.